Well, thank you, Tom. Um, I'm going to set a timer because I have a bad habit, and I could keep you here forever. Uh, I want to I want to share to you with you guys um, some thoughts on the things that are of most importance and and you know there there are times where we just go through everyday life and it feels like it maybe is just a normal day and and or maybe just a normal week and maybe we're just kind of getting through life and it doesn't feel like anything special is happening it doesn't feel like anything like like wonderful or dynamic is happening but but then there are these times these glimpses these these moments in our life where where we begin to to see maybe a, a purpose, or we, we begin to see some of the fabric of our life. I remember very specifically one day I was late for something. I, I I don't remember what I was late for. I was hurrying. I was trying to get home. I don't know if you've ever been in a vehicle with somebody else and you weren't necessarily in control of when you were leaving. But this is kind of the situation for me, and and I remember thinking. I really need to go. I really need to have time to to get cleaned up for whatever I was going to, and and this is uh, on vacation break for me. I had been at the University of Florida. This is Christmas break, and as I'm heading home, I pull in the driveway with my friend, and I get out of the vehicle, and my parents are coming out of the house as I'm getting ready to, to hurry in and they say, Andy, your father, your grandfather's heart has stopped and they've rushed him to the hospital and we're heading there right now. I still, to this day, I can't remember what I was late for, but I can really clearly remember the next thing I did. I, I got in the vehicle with them. There are some things that are important in our life, and especially life and death, those those moments that we can remember with great clarity. And, and I remember the events of that day because of some of the things that transpired. And so, so here I get out of one vehicle, I get into another, and we get to the hospital, and the, the thing that, that, that we begin to hear from the doctors is, is this, that he didn't have a heart attack. His heart just stopped. He, we don't know what happened. We, we heard from the minister of his, of his church a little bit of the background story. You see, my, my grandfather was a, a contractor. Uh, he, he lived in uh, northern Ohio most of his life. Uh, I, I grew up in South Florida. They had moved there. And so this is where this is taking place. He was helping at the church. The church had a leak in the roof and so him and another guy were up on the roof and and they had just completed the task and they were getting down off the ladder and my grandfather had gone first and then the other guy was coming down the ladder and and he tripped and he fell and he broke his shoulder and so they called an ambulance the ambulance arrives to the church and and they get the guy on the do you call it a stretcher they get the guy on the thing and they and they put it in the back of the ambulance and the ambulance is getting ready to go but my grandfather was hot they had been working in the Florida sun, and so he walked into the church. The, the minister had seen the ambulance off, and when he walks back into the church, he discovers my grandfather just inside the door laying on the ground. He thinks he's going to call, but he looks out, and the ambulance has been trapped by traffic. There's literally so much traffic that the ambulance can't pull out of the, 
the driveway of the church and so he just decides to run and he bangs on the ambulance and they find out what's going on and they throw the guy with the broken shoulder out and they put my grandfather in the ambulance and they you know they get him to the hospital we, we get there and they say there's there's no brain activity and um we don't think there's anything we can do you probably ought to go home and pray about a decision and then come back tomorrow and that's where we that's where we were left with this decision of what do we do? How do you make the decision to to turn off a machine and is there any hope and and what is it that you even pray for in that moment? So we went home and and my my dad said if the doctors are saying that there isn't any hope then I want it to be clear and then we can let them go. We're, our goal in life is not to stay here forever. It's to, it's to be prepared because of what Jesus has done for us on a cross to go to the place that we will spend eternity. And so with that in mind, we arrived to the hospital and my grandfather is joking with the nurses. And we're trying to figure out why didn't they call us? Why didn't they let us know that this was happening? And they said, the, the nurse that was there said, well, we're sorry, we thought his chart had to be wrong. Because they said that he didn't have any brain activity and this, we just we can't explain what's, what's happened here. It was during this time that I had been making a transition in my life. I had been at the University of Florida and I was studying engineering. And I had, at this point, made the decision to uh, transfer to Kentucky Christian University. And there I would study for ministry. My grandfather knew that his health was not well. He had been praying earnestly that he would live to the day that he would get to see me leave uh, for, for college in Kentucky. To hear the prayers that he prayed, to, to understand the values of of someone when they know their life their life on earth is not much longer you begin to to get a glimpse of of the things that are really worth holding on to and so my grandfather prayed not for his health not that he would live longer but he he prayed for his family and and in that one thing that he would would pray that he would get to see me leave for college in Psalm uh, 37, 4, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. My, my grandfather, uh, that, that time in January, was, was rushed to the hospital, and we thought that would be his last days, but, but he actually lived on. He lived on until August. You see, the, the day came when I was loading up in a van with my parents and getting ready to head off to Kentucky. And we, we loaded up my, my things and, and got on our way. And my grandparents had come over to our house that morning to, to see us off. And when I arrived in Kentucky, there was a message. And it was from my, my grandmother 
after we got in the vehicle and, and pulled away, my grandfather went in on the couch and sat down and went to sleep and went to go be with Jesus. The desire of his heart had been met. I want to tell you there's there's something that's so neat to see in the life of a person who who really is is focused on on what God would would have them do. I, I want to share uh, with you this is uh, this is Psalm uh, one. This is verses one through three. It says, "Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked." I, I want you to see that there's three postures here that are mentioned. The first the first one is walking. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You're, you're not going there. You see, may, maybe if you've been connected to church for a while, you'll, you'll know Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. You, you guys, uh, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You see, we don't we don't seek counsel from from the the wisdom of the world, but we trust in the Lord. And it says, "Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked." It says, "Or stand." You see, there's there's this change in posture from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing. It says, "Or stand in the way of sinners." Let's be clear; it doesn't mean stand in their way, like prevent them from doing something. It means standing with them in the way that they would go or in the things that they would do. You see, the, the posture goes from, from some motion to becoming more stagnant. Or stand in the way of sinners. It says, or sit in the seat of mockers. I remember one of the things that my grandfather told me. When, when you go into a house, he says, don't, get sit, don't go in and sit down unless you plan to what? Do you know? Unless you plan to stay a while. And, and one of the things that's, that's clear here is we've got to be careful what we're focused on and what's important to us in the direction that we're going. Don't, don't walk in, uh, in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sitters or sit in the seat of mockers. It says, but listen, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You see, when, when we have this understanding of, of what our life is about and, and the, the direction it should be oriented, then, then God has a way of coming in and protecting us and, and guarding us. And, and it's not to guard us so we would, we would have a longer life. It's to guard us for the thing in which we would hope for eternity. Check this out in uh, the next section of that of that psalm, it says, not so the wicked. You see, there's, there's another way to life. And, and you can choose to focus on, on Christ and, and that which he has for you, or you can, you can focus on the world and worldliness and, and the gain that you get, get, get here. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. You see, if, if we would live our lives 
in a way that God directs us to, then it's like a tree being planted by a stream of water. My dad and I, for, for a long time, probably since I was about 10, in the summers, we'd get to go spend some time in Wyoming. And it was interesting. There are some really desolate places in Wyoming. It, we would fly into an airport in Gillette, and, and when we would leave the airport in Gillette and head towards the mountains, you would see these things that almost looked like rivers, except they were green. They would be in these desolate areas, these sometimes mountainous areas, but, but in the base of them, there were these green things. They were trees that were planted by streams of water. There was life there. And part of what God is constantly calling us to is to say, there is life that's found in Christ. And if you would plant yourself in his word, if you would follow his law, if you would meditate on it, not just so that you know it, but so that you would do it, that it would become a part of your heart, it would become a part of your life. It's something that you would know with clarity, with certainty. It, it, it would become such a part of you, it would be a conviction. I can tell you that the day that I, I arrived home late and was trying to go somewhere else, when I heard the condition of my grandfather, I didn't even have to make a decision. There wasn't even any thought that was necessary. I just, I just got in the other vehicle and I went. And really that's what... God wants for our lives. He wants to, to so be a part of who we are and, and so much at the core of, of the way we think that it doesn't even take a thought process. When, when we see the right thing to do, when we encounter something in our life, we just go. We just go and do the right thing. I'm going to tell you a couple of different stories. One of the, one of the things that is, is true is life is important. I mean, I mean, life is precious. It's something that we should protect. And, and if, you're, if you're a mother, I know this may even be especially true for you. I remember uh, there was a, a Labor Day weekend, and my dad and I were going to take out the, the boat. This was actually on a Monday. My, my sister was, was home. She's about three years older than me, but at this point she uh, had been in college. And so we decided we're going to go take the boat out. I, I grow up in... Uh, in an area of Florida, southwest Florida. Uh, I grew up first on an island called Sanibel, and then we moved into town, which is uh, what we called town was Fort Myers. And so where we live in town, we, we now live on, uh, on a little place called Whiskey Creek. Uh, to explain Whiskey Creek, Whiskey Creek is a, is a creek where uh, very large boats can go on this creek. I'll, I'll show you a picture of them here in just a moment. But uh, the... The first, the first picture you're going to see is uh, a picture of uh, the Caloosahatchee. The Caloosahatchee is a, is a river. If, you've seen, if you know the geography of Florida, there's, there's a lake that you can see on a big map. It's Lake Okeechobee. Well, the Caloosahatchee runs from there to the Gulf. At this particular place, uh, this is close to one of the banks. It's probably about two and a half miles wide. So you can see across it, but you can't see across it very well. This is the river that I'll speak of, the Caloosahatchee. My parents live off of the, the Caloosahatchee in a, in, in, a, in a creek that's uh, several hundred uh, yards wide. But, but on this Labor Day, we were going to go down the, the river, and then o- which, which opens up into the bay, which then opens up into the Gulf of Mexico. But my mom, as, as we're getting ready to leave, she says, you guys need to make sure you watch the weather. 
You see, there, there were storms that were supposed to be coming in much later in the day, but one of the things that happens over the Gulf, because there's nothing to slow a storm down, sometimes they come up very quickly. And so if you are out in a boat on the water and you see a storm on the horizon, it's already time to head back in. Also, because of this area where we, where we live, there are some shallows where there are some, uh, some grass marshes underwater, but the manatees like to come in and they're very large but slow moving animals and so when you are in that area uh, you have to go very slow they call it a no wake zone and so my dad and I have made it through the no wake zone we often called it the miserable mile because you had to go very slow for about a mile and we got to the other side we got out into the bay almost opening into the gulf and we see on the horizon what a storm the storm is coming early and the the announcement of my mom is ringing in our ears. As soon as you see a storm, you better turn back because if you guys get caught in that storm, I'm going to be worried and you'll be in trouble. And so we see the storm and we, we head back in and uh, all the other boats seemingly have gone ahead of us. They were either paying more attention or had a little more wisdom. Whatever the case is, here we come in, one of the last boats, and we're just enjoying our time. And and as we come from the bay into the mouth of the river, there is a cove-type area, and uh, there is a large boat. It's a 52-foot trawler. That is a very large boat. It has, it has three decks high. Uh, there are 11 people on board, and as we pass by, my dad says, look at that. You know, wouldn't that be fun? That's such a large boat. They don't even have to worry about the storms coming. They have to have no concern about, about the things that could come and toss them. We were in, uh, which sounds similar, but a, a 22-foot open fisherman boat. It is nothing in comparison to a 52-foot trawler. And, and so we're, we're heading in, and, and they're just barbecuing. They're just relaxing. The, the impending uh, storm makes no difference to them. And, and we're in that place that I called the miserable mile, and so we're, we're slowly going on past. And there comes a point when my dad looks back, and he, and he says this phrase, I'll never forget, he says, Andy, they're not, they're not barbecuing, they're on fire. And there's no decision to make. We know what to do. We immediately turn the boat around. We don't go slow through this slow wake zone. We, we hurry as fast as we can to get to them. We, we end up unloading the people off of the boat. We, we radio for the Coast Guard and the Marine Patrol to come. and All of this unfolds on a day where we were just going out to have fun. Eleven people, uh, one infant, a, a toddler, that the people had gotten caught up above the deck because the the engines had heated up they couldn't shut them off it got so smoky they couldn't get to the fuel shutoff valve and literally the the boat burned to the waterline these people not able to even get to a radio couldn't even ask for help but you know the thing that was interesting to us is they didn't realize how much danger they were in they didn't even have a concept of how concerning it should be because when we passed by relatively close to them they just waved when we first went by, they, they didn't understand the severity of the situation. But eventually we get them off and, and we're 
eventually the, the people are loaded off of our boat onto some, some other uh, rescuing boats. And, and as we're pulling away from there, my dad, he says this statement. He says, Andy, you're never going to forget this day the rest of your life. He said, most, most people don't ever have the opportunity to, to really save anybody, but, but there were 11 people that were saved today. And I, and I made the comment because my dad had turned back. I didn't know what caused him to turn back, actually, until this last time we were talking with him. He said he could smell the smoke, and it didn't smell like barbecue. It smelled, uh, it smelled like a, a boat burning. It smelled like fiberglass burning. He caught a whiff of the smoke, and he turned around and, and knew that they needed help, that they didn't even, at the time or just previous, didn't even know they needed themselves. There will be people in your life that you will come across who don't even recognize how much danger that they're in. They don't see the, the direction that they're headed. And, and maybe, maybe if we would speak up or maybe if we would intervene, then, then maybe they would know. We're, we continue going and I'm making that comment about how he had turned around and and, and I, I kid you not, if probably if Karina wasn't here, I, I almost don't even tell this part of the story. I, we're driving, and I said, well, but Dad, if you hadn't turned around, and right when I did that, now the, the, the storm has already come upon us. It's raining so hard, we, we probably can't even see to the, to the doors of the sanctuary here. We're, we're going very slow, but, but I said, if you hadn't turned around... And I thought I saw something in the water. You see, the, the river here is, again, it's two and a half miles wide. We couldn't have even seen the shore from where this picture was taken. But, but when I looked, I said, I, I think I saw a, a gray zodiac, an inflatable rubber raft. And, you know, and sometimes in storms, they, they wash off of, of people's boats. And so the right thing to do is to, to go get it and tow it to your, your house. And, and then you call the police and they wait for someone to say, hey, we lost something. And, and then we can return it to them. We thought that's the right thing to do. And so we turn around and we don't see it immediately. And my dad says, are you sure? I mean, because we're in serious trouble with my mom right now. And... <laughs> He says, are you sure? I said, yes, I, I'm sure I saw something. I mean, I think I did. And it, it wasn't a moment later, we, we see this, this uh, rubber Zodiac. And there's two boys in it. You see, one, one of the things that, that happens often with the river here is when the tide is changing, it will move really fast. It's deceptively fast because of how wide the river is. And, and you can move five, six miles an hour, which may not sound really fast, but, but when you're moving in water and you have no means of propulsion, that is really fast. So, so these, these boys, my dad calls out and says, hey, do you, do you guys need a, a tow? The, the two boys probably range in age from like maybe 9 to 11. One of them has a stick. That's all that they have to, to, try, to, to try to row against the current. One of them says, no, I, I think we're okay. <laughs> they, they were not okay. You see, they were, they were almost at the mouth of the bay, not very far from, from where this uh, other rescue had just taken place. And, and as we would uh, tie them on and... and 
inquire, where do you guys live? You see, the, the hope of thinking we could find where they live when it's raining this hard just by some vague description of, of where they would live on the river, it just, it just seemed astronomical. But it was so interesting because the kids say, hey, we live in Whiskey Creek. They were, they were about four and a half, five miles from Whiskey Creek. They had been gone from their home for over an hour and were towing them. Go ahead and show the next picture. This next picture is, is Whiskey Creek. This is taken from my, my parents' dock. And if you look under the bridge, just, just through that middle section of the bridge, you can see a little opening and you can see a little dock. That's where those boys lived. They lived within eyesight of our dock. We knew exactly where they needed to go. It was, it was no hardship for us. We, we literally tow them in. When we get to their dock, there's a girl who has a phone and she's pacing the dock. And my dad says, is that your, your sister? And they, she says, no, that, that's our babysitter. <laughs> the babysitter had not yet called the parents. She didn't know what to do. She was paralyzed with fear. You see, they were, they were allowed to play in the boat just, just where the dock is, but because the current was moving so fast when the boys got in the boat, they were sucked out into the river. The river then sucked them out into the mouth of the bay, and they were on their way out to the Gulf of Mexico. You see, they, they had no clue the danger that they were in. And sometimes that's, that's true with us, or sometimes that's true with the people that we come into contact with. There's a man named Jesse, and he has eight sons. Three of his sons are, are going to battle. One of his sons, his youngest son, his name is David. David goes from the battlefield back to home because he's helping, he's helping Jesse with the sheep. You see, David is a, a shepherd. He's one who... Um, in, in part watches over sheep, but, but occasionally he delivers things. He transfers messages. If you, if you want to follow along, we're, we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel 17. Uh, often uh, you, you might uh, understand this uh, to be referred to as David and Goliath. Listen, there, there was a, an animosity, a, a hatred even that... Uh, that has arisen between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Philistines are those who live on the coastal plains just, uh, just there by the Mediterranean, and then the Israelites live just on the other side of the hills. There is uh, a few valleys that, that go through this hilly area. They are strategic trade routes. They're Im- important ground for several reasons. Uh, this area, often called the Shephelah, uh, the, the, the valley where the Israelites are camped and, and looking over is the Valley of Elah. It, it's interesting, my, my parents got to go to Israel in, in two or several different places, and they said, you know, it's, it's interesting, you go to this area where they, they suspect is the, that exact area where David has has gone down to a, a brook and he's collected five stones, as we'll find out. And they said the, the stones that you see there, they're all white and they're almost all the exact same size. They look like racquetballs. You know, often when I now think of the stones that he picked 
he picked up, I, I now visualize the stones that are around the size of a racquetball, a, a white stone, because of the additional information that, that they have from being there. But, but listen, they, uh, the Philistine army had, had gathered there. They're near this valley of Elah, and they've lined up. It, it finds uh, in, in chapter 17 that they're each on a hillside with the valley between them. And, and the issue for us, if, if you would think through from a strategic military standpoint, they don't want to give up the high ground. Very likely where the Israelites were was, was actually even a, a little bit more of a treacherous hill. And so for the Philistines to attack, they, they would have to not only cross what appears to be several uh, small streams, but they would then also have to traverse up this, this rocky hillside. And, and to attack from below, it, you, you lose much of your advantage. It would be a serious disadvantage. And so we see the standoff, both armies lining up each day for 40 days in a row, not willing to advance. But there is something else that's happening. Each day, the champion of the Philistines comes out. His name is Goliath. We find out he's over nine feet tall. We find out uh, a couple of other things. Uh, He wore a bronze helmet. Uh, This is in verse 4. Uh, in his bronze coat of, of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore uh, bronze leg armor, and he carried a javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead. At this point, an iron spearhead, you ought to think technology. You ought to think if you have an army that's, that's coming to get you, one side has muskets and the other side has M16s. You see, there's, there's a technology difference here. And, and bronze compared to iron, there's, there's a stark difference in, in how hard it is and how, uh, how well it could be used in battle. So, so here's what they're facing. And, and listen, the, the armor bearer walks ahead of him with a shield. He says this, I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. There's, there's something in us that wants to protect our life. But I would, I would tell you, when, when we go through life and we think about life, there are some things that are worth giving your life up for. There are some things that are worth risking for. But you really need to know that with clarity so that when the time comes, you're willing to act. Listen, they were terrified. They were paralyzed. Listen, they, they're doing this and, until, this, until this day. Uh, it says, uh, I've got to switch over here. Um, so uh, David becomes uh, not just a shepherd, but on this day he's a delivery boy. Uh, It says one day, uh, this is verse 17, one day Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on on how they're doing. So David is, is in a role in a day like any of his other days 
he has a task and he's supposed to go do it. It says, so David left the sheep with another shepherd. This is verse 20. And sat out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. And he arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. See, the, the scene is unfolding. They're amassing the armies again as they've done for 40 days. Goliath is getting ready to come out. The, the men will be terrified again when David who hasn't seen this scene unfolding begins to inquire they say have you seen this giant have, have you seen what we're facing and they begin saying if, if anyone would defeat this giant if anyone would kill him then then the king is going to give him several things he's he's going to uh, make his family exempt from paying taxes he'll give him a great reward and he'll also marry one of his daughters off to whoever it is who who would kill this giant David, who is a boy, who's one who would be watching the sheep, who wasn't uh, uh, the age to to be off at war. The, the delivery boy is the one who says, well, who's, who's going to do something about this? Why would this giant be allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Why would he be allowed to, to talk like this for so long? There is an implication that the the tallest in Israel, we find out from earlier parts of Scripture, is Saul, the king. The king who has the, the best armor. He probably would have had the best training, but Saul certainly isn't going. He's not willing to stand up that day or the previous 40 days, nor was anyone else, but but here, David, one who in scriptures referred to as a man after God's own heart, he steps up. Listen, it says, uh, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? You see, they didn't even realize how much danger they were in that day. They weren't in danger from the Philistine army. They were in danger because they had taken their eyes off of who God is and what he could do for them, and they were afraid of the people that were before them. And if you get into a point where in your daily life you're more afraid of the circumstances that you're facing than you are focusing on the God whom you serve, who has sent his only son Jesus to die on a cross for you, then you're in a dangerous place. You need to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen, when, when we... When we begin to see more clearly who God is and what he's done for us, then we can have a bold faith. We, we can have a, a clarity and a conviction to do the right thing, and it doesn't take us a thought to do it. We just act and we do it. Listen, it says, but when David's oldest brothers, Elab, heard that David was talking to the men, he was inquiring, what, what is it that will be done? He's confirming it. He confirms it several times. I'd encourage you to go home and read all of chapter 17. But, but David goes and he confirms what will be done and, and his brothers hear him, especially his older brother. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. He's making an accusation and, and I want to tell you, if you begin to take a stand for God, there may be some people, it may surprise you, it may even be your own family, but, but they'll begin to ask you, who do you think you are? What makes you think that God would use you to do something special, even on this day? 
But I want to tell you, there are some things that you can do to be prepared. See, there are some, some things that, that David talks about that have prepared him for the moment. You see, in our everyday lives, in the everyday things that we do, we can prepare for something that's bigger. Listen, David, David didn't know that he was going to be facing a giant. He certainly didn't know he would be facing a giant that day. David, David was asking this question. He gets away from his brother, and the question was reported to King Saul. So they sent for him. Who is this that's talking boldly? Who is this that's asking what, what will be the reward? And what if, what if I go kill him? And they bring him in. In verse 32, David is having this conversation with Saul. He says, don't worry about this Philistine, David said to Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. You see, Saul's looking at him and he sees a little boy. He sees someone who probably should be a shepherd with the sheep. He sees someone who is, is a, a player of instruments who soothes him when he's in distress. Saul replied, there's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Saul's looking and saying, it, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. You and your power, you can't handle what is ahead of you. But the confidence that we can have is the same confidence that, that David has. He, he wholly and fully believes that it's not in his hands, but it's in God's hands. David replied, um, now to the, the Philistine, he, he gets to, to run out to battle. See, Goliath had walked out to battle with David with the shield bearer ahead of him. He's, he's sneering in contempt. He's looking at David and it says he was a ruddy-faced boy. He was, he was handsome. Okay? Uh, Am I a dog? He roared. This is in verse 43. That you come at me with a stick and he cursed David by the names of his gods. W- one of the gods that, that the Philistines would serve is a god named Dagon. He's a half-fish, half-man god. He has like a, a fish bottom in a in a like a man top <laughs> and and that's what they worshiped and, and when he comes out he comes out in the name of dagon he comes out saying uh, essentially our gods are better than you and you cannot stand against us he says who am i uh, that you come at me with a stick and he cursed david by the names of his gods come over here and i'll give your flesh to the birds uh, and the wild animals goliath yelled all kinds of threats are being yelled. It, it doesn't even seem probable. It doesn't seem like a, a contest that should be taking place. But, but this is what David says. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you and will kill you, and I will cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. You see, David wasn't just confident in his own abilities. He was, he was confident in the God whom he serves. You see, when, when David is having this meeting with Saul, he, he says, don't worry about your servant, you see, that day, David was a delivery boy. That day, David was declaring that he is a servant of King Saul. He says, don't worry about your servant. 
For this Philistine will be like the, the bears that I've encountered. He'll be like the lions that I've encountered. When, when, a, when a lion or a bear would come and it would take off or carry off one of the lambs, he says, I would pursue it. And I would go take the lamb from his mouth and I would, I would pull it out and I would club it to death. If it turned on me, I would grab it by its jaw and I would club it to death. And this Philistine will be like one of those. You see, David has a, a bravery and a confidence because he believes that God is with him. You remember in Psalm 1? The Lord watches over those who seek him, who meditate on his, on his word day and night. That's who David is at his heart, at his core. He has a confidence that doesn't seem to make sense. When the Philistines uh, were witnessing this, they certainly had to have thought it was a joke. It says, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. He doesn't, he doesn't sneak around. He, he doesn't hesitate. He runs. Reaching into a shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling, and he hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into Goliath, and he stumbled and, and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. Listen, there's this, there's this picture that, that follows this, and, and, and the way sometimes movies do, they, they kind of show you just a, a glimpse back, and, and we see that here in, uh, in, in chapter 17. This is verse 55, after David has slain Goliath, but it gives us a picture of when David is going out. In verse 50, starting in verse 55, as Saul watched David go out to fight the Philistine, he asked Abner, the commander of his army, Two men who should have been in line to defeat Goliath before David are having a conversation watching a boy go defeat a giant. And, and listen to their conversation. Abner, whose son is this young man? I really don't know. Do you understand? David is an unknown. He's a normal person. He's a shepherd boy. And sometimes when we go through life, we feel like just a normal person. We have a normal job. And what big deal will God do with me today? I want to encourage you with a couple of things. Keep your eyes open and look around. There are people all over the place who are in danger and they don't even know it. And if you would keep your eyes open, maybe you could intervene. You see, there was a, a day on, on Labor Day when, when we saved 11 people off of a burning boat and we, and we very likely saved two young boys from death uh, at being lost out in the Gulf of Mexico. 13 people's lives were impacted that day, but but I didn't do anything to, to help save their soul. You see, at, at that point in my life, I, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't speak up about who God was or what he's done for me. But, but of all the things that you could do in your life, of all the things that we could look at and say take priority and, and, and precedence in our life, it's, it's not the prolonging of life. It's really living our lives for Christ. Listen, listen to this verse from 1 Timothy. This is, this is Timothy encouraging, or this is Paul encouraging Timothy, who, who he calls his true son in the faith. Somebody who he has, has mentored, who he's, he's put his, uh, his life into. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life. 
the way you live, the, the things that people see. You know what? People are perceptive. The, the, the day that I came home late and was concerned about getting somewhere else, it, it was clear to everyone around what my priority was. There was no doubt. It was to go check on my grandfather. You see, there, there, there are times when you have to think through, is it more important to protect the people who are in a burning boat or to watch out for the manatees in this low zone? You see, we, we, we made a, an instant decision that, that to attempt to save the lives of these people was more important than, than possibly running into a manatee. There, there are different things in, in our life that will come down to immediate split-second decisions. And I would encourage you to be prepared. David was prepared because he would faithfully serve. He would use his sling. He, everything he would do, he would do with excellence. Not so he could slay a giant someday, but so that he could be the best at what he does, whatever he does. And for us, we need to think through, will, will I live my life in such a way that I earn the right to speak into the lives of others? Would I win them over with my, with my actions and with my integrity and with the things that I do with excellence? But you also must speak up. You see, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to really understand grace and mercy. You need to understand the forgiveness that's available to you on the cross so that you can communicate it to others. You need to live in such a way that, that they, they can tell that you're trying. My, my dad for, for Christmas gave me a gift. Anybody receive a gift for Christmas and you're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> you, don't, you just don't really get it. You're like, I'm so, so thankful for this small tool bag. You see, I got a small tool bag. And it was empty. Small, empty tool bag. And my dad is just smiling really big, you know, so I know it means a lot to him. But it's a new tool bag. It's not even like it was my grandfather's tool bag or something like that. You know, there's, it's still got the tag on it. And I'm, thanks, dad. I just set it aside. And, but, you know, after we had opened, opened our gifts, he, he comes over and he says, Hanny, I, I want to tell you a little bit about the tool bag. Um, I have, a, I have a, a couple of tools I want to give you, and I want to put those in there because I want you to be able to have that in your vehicle. And I said, okay, you know, all right, I, I get it, you know. He says, yeah, I, you know, very likely you won't need to use them for yourself, but you may come across somebody else who's in need. And I want you to, I want you to be able to be prepared to, to help them. And if you happen to be in need, then, then, I, then I just rest assured that you've got everything that, that's in there, and there's some gloves, and there's some pliers, and there's screwdrivers, and, and some simple things. But he said, but it's very likely that you'll come across somebody else who's in need, and, and now you're prepared to help them. I want you to live your life in such a way that you're prepared to help others. But as, as Paul encouraged Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and others. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you, God, for the way that you move and work in our lives. And God, sometimes it just seems like another day. 
But God, I pray that you would help us in our daily lives to really excel, to do everything as if we're doing it for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to more fully understand uh, who you are, Father, and who we are, and the great space that's between that. But God, I thank you for Jesus that would come and erase that space, who would bring us together. Father, I thank you for Jesus on a cross. But God, I thank you for the hope that we see in the resurrection. Lord, I pray that, God, that our lives would be lived in such a way that we would earn the right to speak into the lives of others. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the things that we go through. You know the discouragements that people could place upon us. And Father, as David even would have uh, a struggle with his older brother, God, I pray that we would trust what you say about us. God, I pray that our value wouldn't be seen in the role of our current daily job, but God, that we would see our value in the price that you were willing to pay for us. Father, so many people don't see that. They don't even know the trouble that they're in. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to to speak in a way with gentleness and respect that would point them to the Savior. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Father, I thank you for the encouragement of the church. God, the way that you would knit us together. Father, for the community that we have and Father, for the fellowship that we have in you. Father, I pray that you would help us to sharpen each other, to encourage each other, but God, also as we need to challenge each other. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.